This is Ryan Harvey in Baltimore, and you're listening to episode 23 of Hope Dies Last, How Bolivians Defeated a Coup Regime. Bolivia just held its presidential election, and socialist Luis Arce has won that election. This summer, after the government canceled elections for the third time, the social movement said, basically said, hell no. Blocks and protests have intensified in Bolivia after the lack of answers on a definitive date for the general elections. The social movements are, are really driving a lot of their social change here in Bolivia. Put the Socialist Party back in power, putting an end to the far-right government, which overthrew everyone. There are not free and fair elections when you have one party that's hyper-criminalized, when literally candidates can't campaign because they're going to get thrown in jail. Uh, it really, you know, these elections were a victory of grassroots bottom-up change. There was a huge and very significant electoral victory very recently. I'm, of course, talking about Bolivia and the movement towards socialism's victory over a coup regime that had held power for the last year. I was very interested in understanding how Bolivians won an election for the socialist movement during a regime like this, where there had been multiple massacres, leftists who had been arrested, candidates who had been thrown in jail, and a lot of leaders of the opposition party who had fled the country, including the president, Evo Morales. Needless to say, the victory is a very important moment for the people of Bolivia and also for the people of Latin America in general. It comes after a number of socialist governments have fallen or come under fairly significant crisis in the region in recent years following what was called the pink tide of leftist governments taking power democratically throughout South America. Speaking with me today about this is Thomas Becker. He's a human rights lawyer and has been living in Bolivia for the better part of the last 15 years. He works closely with Bolivian social movement organizations, and he is joining us today from La Paz, Bolivia. Thomas, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much. We've never met before. We were just put in touch by a mutual friend, Ben Dangle, who's an author of uh, several really amazing books about the politics of Latin America today and especially social movements from the left and how they organize and how they relate to states and power. Because we haven't met, maybe you could give me a better introduction of yourself, but also give my listener an introduction to to you and, and the work you do. Unfortunately, I'm a lawyer, but uh, I, I'm a lawyer who's worked in Bolivia for most of the last 15 years, working directly with social movements on a variety of issues. But uh, primarily, uh, in 2003, there were a series of massacres known as Black October. The ex-president Gonzalo Sanchez de Lozada carried out uh, a series of massacres. And so for many years, I've worked with the victims, brought a case against him, both in Bolivia and in the United States, where he currently lives. And we actually won the trial uh, against him and his defense minister in the U.S. Um, so I've worked you know, with social movements and, and, and indigenous communities here in Bolivia for a while, for the last year, I've been documenting abuses under the Añez regime, the de facto government that took power after Evo Morales was forced to step down. I've spent most of the most of the last decade and a half in, living in Bolivia, working on human rights issues, again, really closely with social movements. Did you help bring down a president or you help prosecute an ex-president? Yeah, well, so the case against Goni, Gonzalo Sánchez Lozada, it's the first case against a, a living ex-president in the United States. Uh, so he's the first living president who's been tried for human rights abuses and uh, and held, well, one tried and two held responsible or held accountable. Uh, so, you know, in some ways, it certainly has been a, a pretty historic case, which, uh, you know, I think the, all the credit goes to the families who for quite literally, you know, 15, 16 years fought for justice and, and followed them to the United States. I mean, these are it, going just to give a little context, Goni is, you know, one of the richest, most powerful people in the history of Bolivia. He is 
in many ways seen as the face of colonialism here in Bolivia. He's known as El Gringo for having a quite gringo accent, an accent that's substantially worse than mine, believe it or not. And, uh, you know, indigenous communities from, you know, the poorest country in South America, when they started this case, people thought, there's no way you can do this. You, you guys are poor. This is Goni. He's the most, he's intocable. He's untouchable. Uh, yet the families followed him to the United States and held him accountable. Uh, actually, we just won our appeal a few months back in, in Florida. So yes, it, it certainly was a, a historic win for, for social movements in Bolivia. Well, speaking of victories, why don't you just tell us what just happened in Bolivia just about two weeks ago and how significant it is? Yeah, I mean, boy, it's been it's been a crazy year and a crazy last few weeks. Uh, you know, the Moss Party, Evo Morales's party, Evo was the previous president, and currently, uh, well, in a few days, the, the new president for the Moss Party, Lucho Arce or Luis Arce, you know, he won a, a really, really historic really historic election here uh, with 55%, um, something that's, that honestly is unprecedented in Bolivia. I think it had the highest turnouts ever in, in, in Bolivia. And, you know, after a year of what has been just unprecedented repression, really since the dictatorships, uh, this win was an enormous win, not just for the Moss Party, but really for Bolivia, for social movements, for indigenous communities, for for groups that have been just completely marginalized and repressed for now almost a year under the Anya's administration. And what has life been like? A lot of my listeners probably have followed somewhat or or some more than others have followed what's been happening in Bolivia and and in Latin America in a larger context in the last decade or two. But Bolivia had been under a socialist government of Evo Morales for, for well over a decade and had seen some pretty substantial economic improvements and a lot of benefits for the poor in a country that's quite divided both in class and, and racial terms. How did this coup come to be and what was life like during the coup and, and what, what were some of the key moments during the coup regime that, that really defined the, the violence and racism that people have seen in it? To give a little context, as you mentioned, look, the economy under Evo Morales did substantially better. Uh, it, it was the second, it was the fastest growing economy in Latin America for the last several years. Poverty halved, uh, really both kind of the working class, the middle class, and even the upper middle class and upper class all did better on, under the, the Evo government. Nonetheless, I think there were several factors, and, and, and I'm going to try to dive a little bit into the weeds or the nuance here, because I think in, in the US, we like to simplify things. It's Really, the left likes to think it's this very clean-cut black and white uh, right. issue, and it, it is a little more complex. Well, it, it's definitely time to get in the weeds in terms of the podcast, so let's go there. Great. Uh, <laughs> all right, we're, we're, we're jumping in. Intro's done. Let's Yeah, let's dig in. Well, so, you know, on the one hand, you have an incredibly racist country. Uh, the economic elites, the whites in the eastern part of the country, really for the last 13-plus years while Evo Morales has been in power, uh, there's just been this animosity that's grown and grown and grown. And the right has never really fully been able to mobilize and, and, and beat Morales in elections. So over the last year, there were a series of, um, honestly, well, on, on one hand, mistakes uh, that I think the right capitalized on. And, and, and here's where I'm getting to the weeds. I think there were critiques by the left or by the center of Morales, some about his extraction policies, some about corruption within the government. So over the last year, the really and and then also, sorry, I need to mention the fact that Abel decided to run again. Uh, this was really mm-hmm. controversial. There were limited terms, and he he tried to pass a referendum to stay in power longer. Just barely lost after you know a really kind of a smear campaign 
that right before the elections alleging that he had this illegitimate child, which were, you know, was found to be false, but it really impacted the election. And so uh, a court in Bolivia basically said that, that Evo could run again. It was his human right. And this was really controversial. And, and it was controversial across, you know, the center, progressives, some, some left, and certainly the right. But so there was this kind of discontent uh, amongst different groups. But certainly the right came in and capitalized on, on, on some of this discontent and really co-opted some of the criticisms of Evo Morales. And, and really, you know, six months before the, even the elections took place, you know, the right had already planted the seeds of this narrative that there would be fraud. And, and so they really, they ran with it. Um, and, and so uh, just about a year ago, or slightly more than a year ago, you know, there were elections, Evo Morales won with slightly more than 10%. In Bolivia, you either have to win with a majority with, you know, over 50%, or you have to win with 40% and beat the second place candidate by 10%. And so Morales had done that. In order in order to have a majority or, or in order to become the president? In order to become the president. So it's a, it's a kind of a unique system. So you have kind of two ways of winning. And, and he, had, he had the 40% and had won by slightly over 10%. But again, you know, from the first moment that the first ballot was cast, the right was screaming fraud, fraud, fraud. And then the OAS came in and really, really kind of doused, <laughs> I shouldn't say just doused, they just completely dumped as much gasoline as possible on this already growing fire uh, of discontent and this narrative that there was fraud. You know, again, not to dive too deep into the ne- to the weeds, but I think it is important. You know, so in Bolivia, there are basically two counts. There's the official election count, and then there's kind of the quick count to give a pe- give people an idea of where things are going. It's not the formal one. During the uh, on election day, or sorry, election night. The quick count was paused, and then the following day, you know, when it resumed again, Evo had gone from, and I don't remember the exact percentages, something like nine percent to just over ten percent, or eight point seven to just over ten, something like that. And so the OAS said, "How could this be possible? This is fraud. This is total fraud," and really bought the rights narrative. I mean, if you look at the last three elections, this happened every time. The, the trends, just like in the United mm. States, you know, if you go to you know, as we wait later, in, in, when California pops up, the Democrats go up drastically. And the same thing happens here right. in Bolivia, where you have, uh, you know, it takes a lot longer for the, the, the rural votes to come in, which are overwhelmingly, you know, indigenous and, and campesino folks vote not exclusively, but, but really 90 some percent for the Moss party. So by the time, you know, the, the votes came in 24 hours later, the jump is totally, you know, can be explained. And there's been a lot of analysis by Several different academics, institutions, uh, the Washington Post, New York Times, also the OAS basically made a big mistake. But once they kind of said, no, there was fraud, it just kind of set what was already in motion. It just kind of spiraled downhill. And, and then protests began. The police mutinied. The, the military basically told Abel Morales to step down. The uh, One of the main right-wing opposition leaders named Fernando Camacho, known as Baby Bolsonaro, uh, for having <laughs> extremely right-wing views, uh, went on television and said that he had paid uh, the police to mutiny and that his father had gone uh, had, had negotiated with the military to to basically force Morales to step down. He and just straight up said that. He, he admitted it on television. Wow. <laughs> There's no like, <laughs> yeah, this is not like, this is the thing. I think some people on the right are saying, no, these things are conspiracy theories. He explicitly said this uh, this is how things went down. To add more to the, this really problematic dynamic, 
so so Abel stepped down. Several, really dozens of Hamas officials stepped down. So he stepped down. His vice president, the president of Senate, the president of Congress, all stepped down because they were receiving death threats. They were burning their homes. Folks from the right, uh, these kind of parastate groups, were burning their homes, attacking them, threatening them, threatening to rape their family members, threatening to kill their family members. So dozens of Moss officials uh, resigned. And to add to this guy Camacho and his role in this, the day that Evo Morales stepped down, the Catholic Church called a meeting with opposition leaders. So uh, at this meeting were, again, members of the church, the Brazilian ambassador, Camacho's lawyer, this man named Jerjes Justiniano, who later became a minister for Añez, the, the, the de facto government, and I believe the campaign manager of Carlos Mesa, who was running against the MAS and who came in second place, So, and a few others. So all these opposition leaders got together and decided, all right, well, we're going to name the next president. This is one year ago. This is one year ago. Uh, none of these people were elected officials. None of them were indigenous. It didn't involve any of the social movements. And they chose this far right-wing candidate, uh, Yenine Añez. Uh, her party had received something like 4% of the votes. She was relatively unknown other than she had previously tweeted out racist things saying uh, indigenous uh, ceremonies were satanic, uh, referring to indigenous people as indios and other offensive racist terms. So people didn't really know who she was. Her party was obscure, but she's a far right candidate from uh, the Beni region. And she basically named herself president. <laughs> and that was the transition. Uh, certainly not democratic on, on any level. And, you know, once she came to power, you know, the right had been out of power for the last 13, 14 years. And, and really the right has basically since the Spanish came, has really ruled this country. And, and you know, there was so much animosity. And, and so her government really, you know, she, as a lot of people we talked to on the ground said, she and her government had been collecting trophies, just going after leftists, going after social movement leaders, going after journalists, going after certainly mass politicians, and, and really enacted some of the most, look, this last year really has been probably the most repressive year since Bolivia became a democracy. Um, just to give a little kind of like simply give some numbers. In her first week alone, her government carried out two massacres, the first in Sacaba, the second in Sancata. Sacaba, there were 11 people killed, 120 plus injured on the side of indigenous protesters. On the side of the state, there were zero police, zero military killed. Four days later, the same thing happened in Sancata, 11 killed, dozens injured, zero police, zero military killed. And she passed this decree, basically giving immunity to the soldiers who carried out the killings. And the government then blamed the, the protesters and said that they killed themselves to make the government look bad. Uh, this is her first week alone. And November, just to give put it in context of Bolivia, this was the November 2019 when she took power was the second deadliest month since Bolivia became a democracy nearly 40 years ago in terms of state killings. So this is, she started with a bang. And, and, and from that moment, you know, onward. The, the year has been one of the most repressive years, certainly the most repressive year I've ever seen being here in Bolivia. And, and repeatedly talking with folks on the ground over and over, you know, I heard people say, look, this is worse than the dictatorships, because at least during the dictatorships, we knew what it was. This government has really sold itself as something different, particularly in a, internationally. So on the one hand, you know, while they're throwing people in jail, torturing them, charging them with sedition, and terrorism because they've spoken out against the government. Internationally, they're selling themselves as this, you know, democratic regime with this lovely Christian president. Uh, you know, when she took power, she entered the, the, the 
the palace with a Bible, quite literally bigger than her torso, and said that the Bible has returned uh, to the palace. You know, it's it's been a it's been an incredibly rough year, uh, and that's why I think you know this win uh, a few weeks ago was just so incredibly important. The coup a year ago was not surprisingly, you know, Donald Trump spoke of it as heralding a very important return of democracy to Bolivia, which is very much in line with the U.S.'s history with Bolivia and with Latin America in general, supporting right-wing dictatorships and, and coup regimes in the name of democracy. Obviously, it's a global phenomenon. What's What has been, j- just while we're on that subject, like what has been the U.S. role? Y- you mentioned the Organization of American States. They offered a what, what amounts to a false statement, but that ended up giving the coup regime the validation that they needed to sort of uh, rubber stamp what they were doing. What, what's the U.S. role been in the last year? You know, it's complicated. And I think as time goes on, we'll know more. Certainly the U.S. has had a really, not the best relationship with Abel Morales, we should say. You, you can know, the, cuss on the show. It's fine. <laughs> well, so the, the, the U.S. government has is, is, is certainly had a hostile relationship with Abel and the Moss Party. They've funded groups under kind of the guise of democracy, these kind of right-wing groups for many years, particularly in the eastern part of the country. But, you know, over the last year, it's really not clear. Really, I think most people on the left and right didn't expect there to be, didn't expect things to explode like they did and for Mm. Abel to step down. So, you know, I don't, I haven't seen any kind of like, you know, smoking gun of the U.S. like step-by-step taking out Abel Morales, but certainly the, you know, the, the United States government has not been a fan of Abel. And, you know, when, when Anya's took power, Trump and certainly a lot of, you know, Pompeo and, and others, you know, praised the new regime despite unprecedented human rights abuses. And throughout the year continued to members of the government, Murillo, Arturo Murillo, who is the minister of government and really kind of seen as kind of the, the right hand man of, of, of Anya's and really her enforcer. You know, he visited the United States. Several officials talked to folks with, like Marco Rubio. So, you know, there was an awareness of what was going on, and the government supported it and, and, and invited uh, this this new government to really carry out the really gross behavior. But in terms of kind of like having their fingerprints on on what took place, uh, it's not clear what role they had. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of people like to simplify this and say, I don't, I'm not sure if you saw that there was a tweet by. Uh, Elon Musk, who said, you know, we'll coup whoever we want in response to Bolivia. Um, there's this kind of narrative that, you know, the U.S. is behind it and trying to, to take Bolivia's lithium. And I'm sure, you know, you know, the United States wants resources. And for for many, many years, the United States got resources from Bolivia. But, you know, I don't think it's that simple. I don't think that, the, you know, the U.S. government was like, all right, we're going to overthrow Able to get this lithium and Elon Musk is in it. And mm-hmm. it's not that simple. I mean, it is part of the, this is one of many factors and many pieces to a really complicated year, but it's not kind of that black and white, like, you know, we we trained, well, actually, we certainly have trained folks that that participated in this, but it was not like this, we trained forces or death squads or or paramilitary groups that stormed the palace and and kicked out Avo. It's, It's certainly more complicated than that. When I read history more, you, you, you notice some of these things like, Brzezinski back in, I forget when the quote was, but, you know, he was, 
Jimmy Carter's, uh, I think he was the national security advisor, but you know, he claimed credit for enticing the Soviet Union to come into Afghanistan to give them their Vietnam. And some people look at that and say, this is proof that the U.S. is, you know, is the reason the Soviets came to Afghanistan. You could also look at that and say, the U.S. is trying to claim credit for this because it makes them look like they are totally on top of their ball game and they ultimately control everything. And, you know, they win either way, right? But it's certainly. And again, it's not to say that the U.S. didn't have interest in getting rid of Evo Morales. Right. It's certainly, particularly this administration, well, really, frankly, every administration. But, you know, Trump is not a, an Evo Morales fan on every any, on any level. Uh, but it, it was somewhat of a surprise, like really across the board, left, right, center, everyone was kind of surprised that things blew up in the way they did. And really, this goes back to the OAS legitimizing what were in some ways, conspiracy theories, you know, it, it just gave mm-hmm. legitimacy to these things that otherwise people would say, you know, what are you talking about? This is crazy. It, right. Again, with the context of there were social movements, including some on the left that were protesting him for, you know, extraction policies. I mean, it's it's not this clean, you know, big bad guy, right wing, you know, the right takes down, you know, glorious leftist leader who's perfect. It's, you know, it's, it's certainly more nuanced. But boy, the right really did come in strong and really kind of muffle the voices, the more center left voices uh, that were criticizing the government. And the MAS, the movement towards socialism also has, you know, there's a political spectrum within the party, correct? There's a left wing of it and a, and what I you wouldn't call it a right wing of it. But there oh, are differences of opinion oh, there, too, right? Absolutely. I mean, you know, really, it, it's a, somewhat of a stretch to call the, the MAS socialist. I mean, I think... For instance, they, you know, the the way they say they nationalized the in, several of the industries. Really, they took fifty point one percent or something. So, you mm-hmm. know, it's not a full nationalization. There are some that want, you know, are dogmatic Marxists. There are some that are really almost anarcho syndicalists, particularly based in kind of indigenous bottom up rule, if you could even say rule. So, there's certainly a spectrum, and there's diverse opinions in the Moss Party, which is lovely, and which is actually what makes Bolivia so special. Is there is so much diversity on the left. And some of the folks, you know, decided they wanted to work within the party. Some were, I would say, certainly more the academic, more upper class elite leftists. This was this is a real big problem that and, that took place last year, and that I think really needs to be highlighted because it, it hasn't been discussed that much. And, and there were progressives that that were critical of Evo, but but boy, they got in bed with the right in a way that was shocking. You know, it's not like the Democrats getting in bed with the right. These are slightly more progressive folks, but they got in bed with these fascist, quite literally fascist groups. I think people throw out the word fascism quite liberally, but but groups that explicitly are anti-Indigenous, that believe that Indigenous people are inferior, many who believe that they shouldn't even vote. And they got in bed with them and really, you know, protesting in the streets for democracy. Wow. But the irony is they're literally side by side with people who don't believe in, don't have democratic values, don't believe indigenous are good enough to vote. It was really problematic. And it really, again, gave legitimacy to a coup government. I mean, this has been the really scary part is, you know, I think in the US, we, we think that, you know, you have to be driving down the street in a tank and have a big mustache, this like really kind of (laughs) banana republic stereotype of a dictatorship. Um, and this government was different, you know, Yanine Añez is this kind of soft-spoken, lovely, I would say like traditionally pretty, very gringa, very like light-skinned leader, which is quite different than the indigenous majority here. And I think it was an easier sell to the United States. And, and, and speaking of the United States, you know, you asked about that 
you know, another thing that's really worth mentioning is this government hired a U.S. consulting firm, CLS Strategies, uh, to to clean their image, basically rebrand their image on human rights, democracy, and votes. Um, wow. So, you know, while they're killing people in the streets or arresting people for terrorism without any sort of proof and torturing them in, in jail, they're selling something completely different. And and these are folks based in D.C. associated with both parties, but somewhat more so with the Democratic Party. Um, one, this guy Mark Firestein, he did, he was head of Latin American Affairs under Obama. He actually helped get Goni, the the president that we had sued, or still kind of in this case, and because of an appeal, he helped get him into power. There's a there's an excellent documentary card called Our Brand is Crisis about how they actually came down to Bolivia and created a fake crisis to make him win. Uh, there's a there's a also a you know a Hollywood film with Sandra Bullock based on it that is not quite as good as the documentary. Um, but this this firm was hired by the Anya's government. This firm also was hired by the Honduran government after the coup there. And so they really work with these kind of right wing, well, quite literally authoritarian regimes to help clean up their image. And this is why it's been such a tough year, because I think you can't get away with the kind of coups, the, the 70s coups anymore. It's why you see this wave. A lot of the pink tide governments like have been removed through undemocratic means. But again, it's not like tanks storming through the streets and, and military storming the palace. Uh, so, you know, in the U S we, have, we get to think, Oh no, there was no coup. Meanwhile, you know, people are being thrown in jail and, and journalists or stations are being shut down for criticizing, the, criticizing the government, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You're listening to hope dies last. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and head on over to patreon.com slash Ryan Harvey music. That's P A T R E O N.com slash Ryan Harvey music and sign up to make a monthly donation to help support the show. Enjoy the rest of the episode. With that all in mind and understanding a bit of the of just the violence and the repression that people were facing even just days after this coup took place, maybe you could talk about how social movements responded in terms of organizing and mobilizing and you know, leading up to this election, I understand Bolivia is a country with pretty phenomenal fabric of social movement organizations and that there's a pretty strong mobilization among the indigenous communities, among the poor. How did there end up being elections? Walk us through the last year of how it came to, to be that there was an election and, and the MAS won. Well, so, you know, when, when Anya's took power, she was this is how I think they justified kind of the really undemocratic transition. She said she came to power, well, when she was named by, again, non-elected officials, she was just going to be a, tran- a transitional, an interim president, basically a placeholder. And she was going to call elections within 90 days, which she you know, clearly didn't do. Uh, repeatedly, they canceled the elections uh, for various reasons, most recently you know, using COVID as a, a pretext. And, and 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 really during the year, what they did is they criminalized being part of the Moss Party. So I, I think again, you can't really get away with the kind of dictatorships or the a coup like like you could in the seventies. So you had to have some sort of democratic legitimacy to get the support of places like the United States and Europe and a lot of the you know the, the partner countries in, in, in Latin America that they trade with. And so I think they had to sell it as something different. And so she said she would call elections. She said, I'm just an interim president. I'm not going to run. Of course, you know, she a month and a half later decided she was going to run and and again, kept stalling these elections. And, you know, a lot of folks on the ground think, you know, she stalled because still overwhelmingly, you know, 
the, the folks in Bolivia supported the MAS party. It was the most popular party without question. And I think the writing was on the wall. And so what they did over this last year is they criminalized being part of the MAS party. I mean, something like 600 people just by, by early January were under investigation for sedition or terrorism. They use these charges to really, these kind of vague charges where that you can't really define to just go after anyone. And, and, and so through so many different MAS officials in jail, it, it was, you know, really a lot of the ones that were running, actually all, virtually all the like major candidates that were running had charges for sedition, terrorism, even genocide, which made running a campaign really hard and also made really diminished what the, the popular, again, like the MAS party was the most popular party by far, but then they started associating it with, you know, narco trafficking, uh, even sex trafficking, all this stuff, and spent most of the year really just kind of smashing them under their thumb. And I think because, I, you know, if you talk to people on the ground, I think folks would certainly say this was the only way that they could even have a chance of winning. Um, despite so that- So you think they were just buying time, hoping yes. they would win an election at some point? Kicking the can down the road till they could really put enough of them in jail. I mean, a, a person that, you know, for your listeners, they should just Google Patricia Arce. Um she was a mayor. She's this incredibly powerful woman who was last November dragged through the streets by parastate groups. They, they kidnapped her. She was the mayor of a town called Vinto. Uh, they kidnapped her, assaulted her, sexually assaulted her, cut her hair off and part of her scalp, dumped red paint on her, dragged her through the streets, made her walk several kilometers kind of over gr- glass and then brought her in front of um, these cameras and, and basically made her denounce the Moss party, which she refused to do. I mean, she's just this incredibly powerful woman. And, you know, you see this footage and you're like, how on earth could you, be, you know, how on earth could you condone this sort of behavior? But yet the government right after she received what, what are called precautionary measures by the inter-American commission, which is basically the government is required to give her security protection. They refused to do it. They said, if you tell anybody that we're not doing it, we're going to make you pay. And they did. You know, she, she told the Inter-American Commission. And then subsequently, she got charges for terrorism, self-kidnapping, all these things. And, wow. and they continued to harass her. They threw her in jail, her child and her entire family in jail, including her minor child. Meanwhile, these parastate groups that are allied with the Anya's government continue to send her death threats, come by her house. They killed her her dogs. They poisoned her four dogs. I mean, it's been a horrific year for, for her. And she and, and really, it was because she was this high profile Moss candidate. Again, the higher profile you got, the more they went after you. And because she was tortured and it went viral, you know, most of the major yeah. newspapers covered it. So she became, you know, one of their top targets. They needed to take her out because people saw the footage and thought, "Good lord, what is going on in Bolivia?" Uh, so they tried to take her out and and. Really, uh, you know, she's such a special woman uh, and she, you know, to turn from such a depressing year, you know, she became a, a candidate for Senate and Roman, uh, you know, just a few weeks ago. And, and if you kind of juxtapose these horrific photos of her being dragged to the streets to her now, you know, celebrating with with Bolivians uh, in the streets, it's, it's just she, I think, really represents why this win is so important. You know, the way that she was dragged through the streets, this government has dragged human rights through the streets. Uh, on an unprecedented level. And uh, really these votes, it, it changed that. Um, so they did call elections because again, I don't think they can get away with not having calling elections. I was reading there were blockade, there was street blockades in August 
people were demanding elections sooner? Was that because of the delays because of COVID or just because people were aware that of what the strategy was at that point? Well, I think there was a mixture of things. I think on the one hand, people were, you know, as you mentioned, Bolivia has really in all the, gosh, I've been lucky to work quite literally, you know, basically all over the world. And, and I've never seen social movements like like here in Bolivia. If one single miner is exploited in, in, in the city of Potosí, the whole city of La Paz shuts down. Hundreds of thousands of people block, you know, all the entries into the city. I mean, it, it, it's the grassroots uh, mobilizations here are just really unprecedented. Like I've never seen anything anywhere else. So protest is very much part of the culture here in Bolivia. And after the Anya's regime took power, I think one, on the one hand, folks were so thrown off. It just came so quickly. They didn't know how to mobilize. On the other hand, you know, they certainly did right after. But as I mentioned in her first week alone, she carried out two massacres uh, and killed people. And the next large protest that was called uh, on what what's, you know, Bolivian Plurinational State Day, uh, I believe it's January, January 22nd, uh, she mobilized police and military, tens of thousands of soldiers all over you know, the country, particularly in the capital where people were going to come uh, protest. And so they called off the protest because they didn't want their people getting killed anymore. Right. And so I think for a lot of months, people were trying to figure out how do we respond to this? I think there's this kind of disconnect somewhat between the social movements and the Moss Party, who many of whom were in hiding. You know, one of the critiques of the Moss Party is because it became so centralized with the Moss, it did weaken the social movement somewhat. So I think people were kind of trying to figure out how do we mobilize under this sort of repression? You know, we're not used to this. And so it took a while. And then, you know, the pandemic hit, which certainly slowed things down. But uh, this summer, after the government canceled elections for the third time, the social movement said, basically said, hell no, <laughs> you know, and they went to the streets and they blocked all the major streets. Uh, all the major highways between the major cities. And, you know, I think uh, the Moss Party, the government actually, and this is the really interesting thing about Bolivia that, and the elites here don't really get it, is that the social movements are, are really driving a lot of the social change here in Bolivia. I mean, certainly the Moss Party plays a big role, but it's very bottom up. It's not very top down. And so the government tried to, you know, brought charges of terrorism, genocide, all these things against the Moss leaders for these protests, but the Moss wasn't calling, they weren't calling the shots. The social mm. movements were, and even the, 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 the dirigentes, the leaders of the social movements, you know, they, they brought charges against them. They arrested them, but it's really the base that, that, that makes the decision. Are we going to the streets or not? And so, you know, they tried to go after them and, and with all these kind of spurious charges, but it didn't work because the social movements decided we're doing it. <laughs> it doesn't matter what the Moss says. We want to vote. You guys have basically repressed us for the last year we've had enough and you have promised to call elections and keep delaying and delaying and delaying and the longer you do this the more our sisters and brothers are going to be tortured in jail and the more likely we are, our votes will never be heard so they took to the streets and, and demanded that elections take place and it's what made them take place on october 18 if it weren't for the social movements this would have been pushed back again and again and again uh, it really, you know, these elections were a victory of kind of, I think, grassroots bottom-up change. It's pretty special to see how, how successful they were. And what kind of organizing went into, once the elections got announced, was there a nationwide organizing drive? to like? Is there a sort of a get-out-the-vote mobilization that took place? Or was it sort of implicit that the majority was going to vote on the side of the, of the mass? I, I think it was pretty separate. I mean, I think the right likes to say how like likes to conflate the two. I mean, really the right with all the years of racism, you know, they treat it like 
if you are indigenous, you must vote Moss, you know, and, or if you're with the social movements, you must be Moss. And it's not that simple. It's, it's Bolivia is very, very nuanced. And there's, you know, indigenous communities all over from the highlands to the lowlands, everybody has a different voice and, and expresses it differently. And so really the protests were not about the Moss. The Moss was doing its own thing and trying to run a campaign. Certainly was very difficult when, you know, people are in hiding, you know, Patricia Arce, who I mentioned, quite literally had a, like she was living in hiding because people were trying to kill her. Uh, you have people that had fled to other countries. You have most of the leadership with charges. So they were running their own campaign separately. And the social movements, it wasn't about get out the vote. It was just let us vote. We'll decide what we want. Um, obviously, as we saw, overwhelmingly, they what they wanted was the Moss Party. Or, or you know, it's 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 complex because I don't even think it's necessarily that they wanted the Moss Party. They wanted to get rid of authoritarianism. They wanted to get rid of racism. They wanted to get rid of violence. So, um, and that's what the Moss Party offered compared to the other right. candidates, which were all, you know, far right, with one exception, which was kind of a center right candidate, uh, Carlos Mesa. Hopefully, by the time you're hearing this podcast, you will understand very well what it means to to vote in order to reject a regime rather than embrace a, <laughs> a particular party. <laughs> Obviously, the the MAS is is a much more of a legitimate left wing party than the uh, Democratic Party is. I mean, to uh, conflate the two, very very different. But um, but really is you know like just to kind of like I, there are a lot of parallels between what's going on in the United States and and Bolivia. I would just say it's like if you had like a multiply button times a thousand is what, what we've been experiencing here in Bolivia. So mm. all the, the, the authoritarian tendencies of Trump are magnified, you know, by the thousandth degree and, you know, the kind of quasi whatever left wing, not much, but the, whatever left wing <laughs> elements that the democratic party has, you multiply that times 10 here. So like the Moss party is certainly way more left than, than the Democrats. Uh, and then the authoritarians here are certainly way more authoritarian than Trump. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like the, really in a lot of ways, and what's scary is Bolivia was really a litmus test for what what Trump could get away with, with what other governments could get away with. I mean, the, the, one of the last times, actually, I believe it was the last time that Anya's canceled elections. It must have been like a day later that it was when Trump kind of floated the idea of maybe we cancel these elections. So certainly, like, I think Bolivia, you know, I, I was with a lot of kind of leftist officials uh, including Luo from Paraguay and, and, and others. And they were talking about how these Bolivian elections really were the most important elections for the next few years here in Latin America, because it's it's going to be the test to see what can the far right get away with. You know, are they going to be, they keep pushing it a little further and a little further. And and, and if, if the right was going to be voted in after this sort of behavior, uh, I think there was a sincere fear that this was just going to create a cascade across the Americas. Right. Uh, it, it really was an important election, not just for Bolivians, but but really for Latin America and I would say the rest of the world. You know, I think this authoritarianism can be really contagious and it's it's pretty exciting and special that the, the Bolivians through votes, you know, like, uh, you know. Yeah, through a, through a democratic process. Yeah. And, 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 and really an undemocratic climate. I mean, the fact that they were able to win with 55 percent in a climate where there were not free and fair elections, you know, there are not free and fair elections when you have one party that's hyper criminalized when literally candidates can't campaign because they're going to get thrown in jail. Uh, nonetheless, they won with 55% beating the second place uh, person, Carlos Mesa by 25%. I mean, they nearly doubled <laughs> the second place candidate. 
what you were just saying ties into what my next question was anyways, which was what lessons do you think are there for folks in the U.S., specifically because you and I are both Americans and most of my audience is based in the U.S. We're just one of many countries right now that's dealing with a right-wing government that's definitely tinkering with, if not outright considering the different ways that it can undermine the democratic process. And I think everyone here, again, by the time I get this edited and mixed down and released, who knows what day it will be, but but we may not know for the next month who the president is uh, in January. And we already know what's going to happen. We know that tomorrow night, uh, which is election day, uh, it's possible that Trump will win the day of vote because most people voted early. That will create, like in Bolivia, it will create this illusion that the election was won, right? That that a final vote had been counted. And then when it comes out that that's not the actual count, if that's what happens, the right wing will cry that the election's being stolen. It's kind of a nightmare scenario, but we're just one of many countries in the world right now that's dealing with these kinds of situations. And I guess my question was, yeah, what, what lessons are, are there, do you think, from Bolivia on how you beat a coup regime or are there lessons or are they too sort of particular to Bolivia to be necessarily exported, I guess? No, I mean, I think we can learn a lot from Bolivia in the same way. I think that, you know, in some ways Bolivia is a litmus test for what authoritarians can get away with. I think it's a test for other left-wing and, and grassroots social movements on how to resist. You know, I think a million people would tell you a million different things. So I'm giving you my personal opinion, you know, but really I think what made this happen were the social movements. And that's not to take away from, the candidate of the MAS party, Lucho Arce, or the vice president, David Choquehuanca, you know, they certainly, the MAS party, there are, like we talked about earlier, there were all these gains, the economy did much better, uh, poverty halved, all these things that, and in, in, in terms of like indigenous people, boy, I mean, just the, in, in, in Abel's first government, 14 of the first uh, 16 ministers were all indigenous and Anya's is zero. <laughs> she eventually brought, put in one indigenous woman, uh, a cr- far right Christian indigenous woman who was, and then shut down her ministry. But so, you know, in terms of representation, there was gender parity. I mean, so the government did all these things. So I'm not trying to take away from what the mosque government did, but really, you know, I think these elections, as I mentioned, the, the, folks didn't necessarily vote for a candidate. They voted against authoritarianism and against racism and against repression. They really were the ones that made the elections happen. I think in the United States, it's kind of a special time. You know, I'm not that old, but a little bit older. And I, you know, I've been involved in social movements since, certainly since the nineties and protest movements. And, and I've never seen anything like what's taken place over the last year. And I think, you know, a lot of times people put their faith in a party, uh, certainly the, the democratic party, which I think is, um, problematic. Uh, not that I'm not saying people shouldn't vote for Biden versus Trump or whatever, but but really like, I th- look, the Democratic Party is not going to bring the social change that we need. And I think it's the social movements, you know, Pelosi clapping her hands in a condescending <laughs> way, that does nothing against Trump. What, what, what does change uh, Trump's authoritarian behavior are people mobilizing in the streets, people taking over the streets in a way mm-hmm. that really I've never seen in my lifetime. And I think that's what took place here in Bolivia. And I think learning to not put, you know, faith in leaders, uh, not that they, they can't play a role. And again, the, you know, the Moss Party has done a lot for this country. So I'm not saying like you throw the whole baby out with the bathwater, but it's, you can't rely on the party. And I think there's going to be some really rough days to come in the United States. I think, you know, the Proud Boys and Trump supporters and everybody's going to, it's going to be a mess, but it's not going to be the Democratic Party that's really going to be the solution. It's going to be social movements 
that are holding, you know, Biden wins, holding him accountable. If Trump wins or steals it, even holding them accountable, pushing back, I, I think, um, you know, maybe I'm romanticizing and I'm kind of my politics are bleeding into this, but I really think that that grassroots social movements are going to be uh, yeah. the closest thing to a solution in what's going to be probably a really rough couple months, uh, I think, in the United States. The story that you've told today and the story that other people have told about Bolivia is one of social movements having a contentious relationship, even with the party that they brought to power that's from the left. There's not that that same sort of oh, now that they're in power, let's sit back and let them try to do the, the good things. It's it's like, okay, now you're in power, so here's our agenda. I think people in the U.S. have this sort of thing like, you can't criticize, I mean, you know, obviously <laughs> plenty of us are fine criticizing the Democrats as it means nothing, but there's still a mainstream sort of liberal thing of like, oh, you can't criticize the Democrats in a moment like this or whatever, but it's like, no, we have to. That's how you conduct yourself in a democracy. I mean, it's not even a radical left thing. Like that's a basic democratic principle. Like no, absolutely. these people shouldn't feel too comfortable in office. They they got there to get a job done and now it's time to go to work. So AOC, I mean, I think it's actually cool with like the squad and AOC and Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and, and Ayanna Presley and even Bernie. Like all of them have shown Americans like a, a glimpse of what it can look like to have like some legitimate left in government because they actually have been responsive. They've been pushed back on positions they've taken. Ilhan has been a real, you know, hero of of the left here. And then, you know, her votes when it comes to to stuff involving the Turkish government are kind of sketchy and people call her out on it. AOC early on had some pushback around around uh, issues with with the occupation of Palestine. And she got pushed on it and she actually came around on the right side. So it's not offensive to push on on these people, even if you love them, even if you think like I am, you're so freaking happy that they're in power. It's like such it's such a delight to see these people and the way they speak in Congress. It's un it's unlike anything I've seen before, but keeping them in check is is actually what opens space for more people to participate in that and for the social movements that develop around it, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I I think we have a responsibility to hold them to account, even ones we may love, because guess what? We make mistakes. We get it wrong. I'm sure, you know, like Ilhan Omar is getting thrown a million things at her and, you know, she's has limited information. And so we have a responsibility to give her more information or, you know, maybe I'm giving her the benefit of the doubt too much. There's certainly a lot of Democrats that are just not great, <laughs> you know, and, and when you don't hold them to account, it really opens the door for more problematic behavior. You know, if it's, you know, Obama's immigration policy was horrible, you know, and really he laid a foundation for Trump to make it even worse. You know, if we held Obama to account back then, I don't think we'd be in the same spot we are in terms of immigration with Trump. And and so I think we, we have a responsibility. Look, if you're kind of more progressive, you still, it's your responsibility. If you're more revolutionary, I mean, that's part of revolution is constantly changing, constantly, constantly right. evaluating, you know, self-criticizing because otherwise it becomes stagnant and problematic. And really, you know, in some ways that was, uh, that's one of the critiques of the Moss party is I think, you know, people became complacent. The Moss started to ignore the social movements. And, and, you know, I think right now the party is explicitly said, look, we've learned from our mistakes and, and I'm hoping they have, because I think really, again, it's the social movements that 
put them in power and it's going to allow them to stay in power. And I hope they, I've hope they've learned their lessons. Uh, you know, certainly the Moss government is nothing. I'm not trying to even say they're anywhere close to what the Omnius government is. These are all parties are flawed. All individuals are flawed. But just because you have like a leftist in power and, and you're a leftist, you know, to be silent is, is look, you're, you're not doing your job. It's that simple. Thomas, thanks so much for speaking with me today about this. Where can my listeners follow updates from you from, from the work that you're doing? Uh, so I work for University Network for Human Rights. We're constantly kind of putting out human rights reports or working on cases. Uh, I pretend to use social media. I'm not quite good at it, but I have a you know Twitter that's Mr. Tommy Becker, Mr. Tommy Becker, uh, and then you know hopefully I'll be kind of trucking forward with with social movements here in Bolivia. L- luckily, they've invited me to participate and learn from them, and hopefully we'll we'll be doing pretty big things in the coming years. Amazing. I look forward to it. Thank you. Hope Dies Last is produced by me. Special thanks to our guest today, Thomas Becker. If you enjoyed the episode, subscribe to the show, tell your friends about it. And if you can afford to, head on over to patreon.com slash Music, and you can sign up to make a monthly donation to help support the show. Thanks for listening, y'all. Peace. Peace.